Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. Today, we've got our general partner meeting. We run through a whole myriad of topics, different perspectives from tech, from blockchain to the macro market. Um, the common thread here is the bank run, right? Uh, we are in the wake of three banks toppling over. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of fear that this is the beginning of a bigger earthquake uh, that might be hitting through the financial markets. And so you're going to get a lot of perspective on that. Today, we've also got Fong back. Uh, she's going to run through some big insights around how to leverage advisor networks as an entrepreneur. Um, and I think it's just a great bit of content. So I hopefully you find it useful uh, and enjoy. All right, Mike, good to have you back. I know last week you were heads down triaging, working on the SVB and broader bank run crisis and supporting portfolio companies and friends at other companies. Um, and so you had to miss the pod. You're back up for air. What happened in the last week? What was that? I everyone knows the SVB story at this point. What was it like um, from the VCC? Yeah, I think, you know, I think a lot of people dismiss that sometimes VC's best role in supporting a company can can just be therapy. So I, I like to say on Friday, I switched from investor to therapist, uh, basically just trying to chat through with our founders, help relax them, secure, you know, make them feel secure that, you know, we're here to support the business if need be. And the short of it is there really wasn't much to do Friday, Saturday, or Sunday for founders. I mean, we saw probably some of our best founders or, or those that have been through crises before um, double down on like plan B, C, and D and spend the weekend, you know, going through scenario planning. How do they survive? How do they make payroll? Um, what this, what look, what it looks like if they get 75% of the money back, 50% of the money back, 25% of the money back, 0% of the money back. Um, you know, we were prepared on Sunday to, to loan money to a few of our portfolio companies, uh, which I think was sort of happening across the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, I think while that was a good exercise for a lot of founders, probably not one they wanted to do, but, you know, maybe showed them a little bit of, Hey, how do we, how do we live in an alternate reality? Um, you know, the whole thing was taken care of by Sunday around 5 PM Eastern, I believe. And as of today, all of our companies have full access to capital. Venture debt lines are still in place. It's sort of business as usual. I think the next step now is this cascading effect across community banks. Uh, there were some comments from Janet Yellen uh, that I saw today. I don't. I think they were either done from yesterday or or the day before. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem like they really have a a broader plan yet for community banks, local banks, whatever you want to call them. And uh, to me, that's a bit terrifying, as it does seem like this will continue to push assets from local banks, which I think play a pretty pivotal role in our economy, uh, to the uh, big, big four or big five. What should founders be doing right now in the wake of this bank run dynamic, which may end up being the beginning of a bigger dynamic that we don't understand yet? We don't know yeah. what the future holds. But what is the recommendation? What's the risk management? What's the triage game that tactically, mm -hmm. what should people do? Yeah, there, there are a bunch of products out there. So there's a bunch of ways to hold your money, right? You can hold it just in a checking account, which as of today, is each account is still up to $250,000 of FDIC insurance money. And we, we've now seen that like that will work, right? So there's a real backstop there. Um, what 
there are plenty of products that banks offer, including one of our own row, uh, that allows you to sweep that money into you know, up to 75 different accounts to increase that balance, all operating from the exact same place. And then you also have like short-term treasuries and money market accounts, which are invested assets, which sit in a whole different risk bucket. Uh, they don't sit on banks' balance sheets for the most part. And you can put money into that. Founders can do that. So we've seen founders doing, especially now with rising interest rates, is look for like bond laddering solutions, money market accounts, places where they can actually earn yield and improve cash runway. Uh, this is a change from the last five years where these assets didn't really yield enough that it was worth it. Um, but now they do. So we've seen some really interesting strategies come in place. We work with a bunch of partners who are helping our portfolio companies do this. And to me, that's an exciting kind of new new frontier for for founders to go and A, reduce their risk on the banks and B, um, earn more interest. I will add one thing. I don't think there is any more risk in holding your assets in banks, uh, especially if you're holding it at one of the big banks or even at this point, some of the kind of more middle market banks. So not your tiny community bank, but maybe like the first republics of the world. Um, I don't know if those banks will continue to look and feel the same way they do today that they will in, in you know two two weeks or two months. But I don't think there's any risk to capital being held in those banks. But again, do I think founders should have twenty million dollars in a bank checking account? Probably not. Yeah, especially not an interest bearing environment. Uh, what is bond yeah. laddering? Because this has been the product that has uh, come up most. Uh, there's two things that have come up most in the last week. Everyone's realizing, oh, we should do some sort of sweep account. So we're mm -hmm. getting more FDIC coverage on our balance. And oh, interest rates are up. We can actually get yield and still maintain some liquidity. And that's, that cross-section of requests has generally led a lot of people to bond laddering. So could you go through what bond laddering is? Yeah. I mean, you might be the better person to talk about this. So I'll start and you can chime in. Uh, bond laddering is basically the process where you own treasuries across different maturities which allows you to be able to hold those treasuries to maturity without dealing with fluctuations in bond prices um, and get access to your capital in an, a timely manner that coincides with generally your cash flow needs. So if you were a big LP investing capital, you might bond ladder based upon your anticipated uh, capital calls from GPs that you invest in. If you're a startup, you might bond ladder based upon your anticipated payroll expenses or large business expenses. Uh, going out to the future. So what that would look like is maybe you buy, you have $10 million in the bank, maybe you buy $3 million of one-month treasuries and roll them every month, and $3 million of three-month treasuries, and $2 million of six-month treasuries, and so on and so forth down the line to match with your burn and anticipated capital needs. Now, these these treasuries are fully marketable security. So if there was an event where you needed them, you could always sell them. You might take a small loss in that position, and uh, but you know they are available and, and fully liquid. Uh, uh, it's even easier than that. So I'll add one more layer. This is such a yeah. common, common product. That's the underpinning of it, that this has been productized. So now you can invest in a account or through a broker that basically does this. Yeah. And, you know, when I do bond laddering, what I will end up doing is put money into a bond laddering cycle. And every two months, a percentage of the money becomes, comes due. So it makes it really easy to manage your cash flow and your capital commitments. You put the money away, you're getting interest. Every two one or two months, you're getting money out. So you can budget against expenses, payroll, things you need. And if you, at that point, don't need the cash, you can throw it back into the pit and start generating yield. The second thing about this is it's pretty special. Is one, it gives you some, it's almost liquid. 
So it's not quite as liquid as a checking account, but it's almost liquid and you can manage against it really easy. It's very predictable. It's very stable as far as stable can be. Uh, the cash flows are very predictable, but also a lot of these products are tax-free on interest because they're government entities. And that means you can get, you can get like 5% or something. It's equivalent of on a pre-tax basis of getting like 6% uh, in today's market. So they end up having some tax advantages. It's uh, if you need a degree of liquidity, you know, it's something that you're like, hey, we're going to need this in the short term. It's a really good solution as long as you know your liquidity needs, like the timing of those cash flows, you can pretty easily schedule out a bond laddering strategy that works with it. Um, this is a pretty commoditized product and service. It's not something that you have to find some bespoke vendor to do. If you need help with it, uh, the team over at Chelsea Capital helps a lot of companies navigate this. I'm sure if you have a financial advisor or accountant, they can probably get you into the right place as well, or a banker. Yeah. But this let is a thing. Uh, let me have a uh, normal caveat that we're not tax professionals and you shouldn't listen to our advice. Yeah, and you shouldn't <laughs> listen to anything we're saying. Um, yeah. And don't sue us. But... Uh, if you're sitting on a large cash pile and you know when you're going to need to move that money, bond laddering in today's environment, not a year ago, is suddenly relevant. And so it's yeah. something for startups to be thinking about. Yep. And individuals. Uh, switch gears for a little bit, though. I think the SVP situation, now the dust has settled, there are some interesting kind of observations I've made here uh, that I don't think people are really talking about. Now, you're hearing a lot of all oh, SVP mismanaged their bond duration risk, right? Uh, oh, SVB uh, wasn't a financially sound bank, or they they were, but they had some issues. I think the big thing that that no one's talking about is uh, that SVB, while an amazing partner to a lot of startups, et cetera, had an overly overly like strong concentration of startups as their customers. And what that means is their business banking infrastructure was cash burning companies. That is not normal for a bank. So if you think about it this way, their deposits were always shrinking on the natural cash flow cycle of startups versus most banks where businesses are either profitable or break even or you know, some are losing money, but the vast majority are making money, right? That's, that's the goal of the businesses. And uh, therefore, their deposits are growing naturally. SVBs were naturally shrinking. And they were reliant upon venture capitalists like us to invest more capital in these startups and fund new businesses in order to grow their asset base, to continue to hold a good bank balance against the loans that they make to these and other companies and individuals. So it's sort of an upside down situation that I don't think many people appreciated or really saw before this kind of broke loose this week. And because of that too, there's a second dynamic here. While SVB might look like it has tens of thousands of customers, which it does in theory, those customers were really backed by the venture capitalists that backed them. So instead of having thousands of customers, they really had hundreds of customers or tens of, of systematically important customers to them. And once those customers turned on them, the bank was going to go down. And that's why I think we saw a bank run here that was the fastest ever seen before. But I don't think you could replicate it at any other bank just because of the sheer concentration of their customer base in startups, which really represent the VCs that invest in them. That is a, I think, a big insight into banking yeah. strategy. Um, the one thing I want to say, though, the balance on it is like that may have been a bad strategy or a bad risk profile, 
it's not like, at, at the same time, it's not like they did anything, as far as we can know right now, straight up unethical or wildly mismanaged, right? If there hadn't have been a bank run, this SVB would still be functioning today. They would have raised some capital, shored up the balance sheet, right? There was a psychological fear that and a game theory that triggered the demise of the bank, probably in an accelerated fashion because it was concentrated ultimately to however many customers it all pinned up to. Yeah. It, which I think creates risk, lack of diversification. But I was saying this on the, one of the, you know, one of the other conversations today. It's not as though it was inherently mismanaged from what we can tell, you know, as a bank should be. They just, the bank run thing is like a real unique phenomenon in, um, in modern capitalist society where all customers leave at once because of a game theory. That doesn't happen to uh, an accounting firm or whatever else. Like, it just, it, it, it's unique to banking commercial banking. So it's kind of a bizarre thing that I'm, I'm hoping there'll be some policy to stop just because it, it seems like we've seen this now for centuries. Yeah. Like what, what, why not correct that if there's a way and maybe there's not a way, but it just seems like there's probably a way. Well, the, the yelling comments, which I think I'll have will link to in the show notes after this today were, were very interesting because she said to, uh, I think it was a Senator from Oklahoma that, uh, they believed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were systemically important, and if they had let them fail, would have caused a larger issue in the uh, in the national banking system and potentially global economy. And that's why they stepped in. And she she gave no indication that there was going to be policy change around community and local banks generally for FDIC insurance. It still seems completely asinine to me that Mark, you can go open a hundred checking accounts at one bank. And your deposits are fully insured for 250 per account. But if you had $25 million in one account and they go under, you lose uh, 24,750,000. So it it just doesn't make any sense in today's day and age. Like we need to update policy here. But the Yellen comments gave no indication that was going to happen. In fact, she, she made it clear that if a smaller bank were to fail in the coming days, they would likely let it fail. So I don't think that helps the situation here. I don't think that's going to help the the bank run from community banks because I don't understand why you'd ever hold your money there, right? Um, at least in today's day and age. I do think that we will see the natural cycle occur in a few years where, you know, today, if you go to Chase for a, a venture debt line, they're not going to give it to you, right? That's not their business. They don't take, they, they don't understand the market and it's not what they do. Uh, but Silicon Valley Bank did, First Republic did, and they did that because they understood the risks and they had a diversified pool of risk and that worked. So I think you'll see these people go to the big banks right now out of fear. And then over the next six months or a year, they'll go, you know what? Things have calmed down. I, I really could use a line of credit for my business. Well, Chase is not going to give it to me, but oh, First Republic or XYZ Bank will. So I'll go there and First Republic says, you know what? We'll give you this loan, but you have to bank with us. Like That's the way the relationship works. And then you'll see money flow back out of those banks. So I'm optimistic that the equilibrium will fix. It just will take time. Thank you, Mike. Fong, what's up? Hey, Mark, how are you? Good. You ready to drop some wisdom today? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, you're, so you're leaving tomorrow, right? I am. I'm spending two weeks in the British Virgin Islands. That sounds uh, lovely. Yeah, I think it will be. I think it's you know juggling the the work and the vacation. Two weeks is a long time to be away. I love uh, remote working. 
you know, I think it's very mentally healthy and all that. So anyway, enjoy. All right. What do you got for us? All right. So today we're going to talk about advisor relationships and how to get the most out of them. So really, there's no debate on the importance of having trusted advisors. There's really no playbook on how to be a successful founder. And advisors can act as a sounding board and a guide, and they can help you with issues you're struggling with. But advisors are a big investment. You're often giving them equity in your company, and you're definitely giving them a lot of your time. So how do you maximize your advisor relationships so they're doing the most for you? Here's some things to think about. First, make sure you're picking the right advisor, not just for their expertise, but also based on their style. You need someone who knows their stuff, but is also good at explaining their stuff. It's not going to be helpful if they're not good at communicating and applying their knowledge in a way that's relevant to your business. Basically, you have to find someone who's good at at advising. And how do you do that? Well, interview them like you would do anyone else. Talk to their references. Hopefully, you can find some founders they've worked with before and gauge how helpful they were to those guys. Also, make sure your working styles complement each other. Do you work well with someone who has a softer style who's encouraging or someone who's going to kick your butt? Use some of the same parameters that you'd use in choosing a co-founder. Find someone who complements your skills and your styles and someone you enjoy working with. Next, keep in mind a good advisor isn't just going to tell you what to do. You probably already know what you want to do. A good advisor will listen to you ask probing questions, and then bring their own experience to the the discussion and help you think about the issue in a different way. This kind of conversation will drive better outcomes. Number three, avoid making your advisor meetings transactional. You have to be proactive about what you need and asking for help. Especially when you're doing well, it's easy to run an advisor meeting, meeting by giving them an update, seeing that they have no major objections, and then going on your way until the next time. But what you should really do is create structure in your conversations and lay out ground rules. Maybe you specifically want to say, hey, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking of doing and try to poke holes in my strategy. Or if it works better for you, maybe you start, they start by giving them their point of view and you go back and forth from there. Figure out what's most helpful and structure your conversations that way. Also, before the meeting starts, level set on what you're trying to get out of the meeting. Is it a decision-making meeting? Are you, do you have to make a call on hiring a PR agency and what their input? Or is it a planning meeting? You want to walk through your plan and how to lower acquisition costs and get their feedback. Tell them so they know what to expect and so you can keep the conversation on track. Number four, avoid updating your advisor on a running list of everything going on in your company. Pick one or two topics and really go deep on those. You're not going to get impactful feedback if you're only spending a few minutes on surface level stuff. And then lastly, be humble and open to feedback. So here at Interplay, one way we assess founders for an incubator is based on their ability to be coached. And I'm pretty sure other investors do as well. I actually just talked to an investor who, during every pitch, gives founders critical feedback to assess how coachable they are. He actually even goes so far as making up critical feedback if he doesn't have anything real, which I thought was funny. That is bizarre. If it- <laughs> If a founder doesn't take constructive feedback well or isn't open to hearing different perspectives, we can't add any value and there's no reason for us to work together. As a founder, you're bringing advisors to help drive your business and make a real impact. That can't happen unless you open yourself up to advice, even if it's stuff you don't want to hear. That's it. That's all I got. This is a big, 
big topic, and I want to add one thing to it. The whole advisor question is about function over form. There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are like, okay, cool, I'm going to start this company. I need to get earned trust and cred with a bunch of investors. They get nine advisors that have cool brand names or cool jobs. They, they don't actually engage any of them. They give them all a little slug of equity and they use their face on a page. Right. That, to me, as a VC, has zero impact. I see Uh the advisory slide and I just flip to the next slide. I don't care. I don't care. But if you are getting real help, real coaching, the advisors are invaluable. And so I think it's about finding those real relationships, engaging them properly and doing the things you just said. But it's, if, if the reason you're bringing someone on is just because they're a name, I don't know. I think that's kind of BS. I think the reality is some firm, firm names and brand names of institutions will move the needle in a raise. Um, big name individuals will probably move the needle with some people. But at the end of the day, the real investors out there are going to be evaluating the merits of your business and your team. And the advisors aren't your team. And they see through that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like with most things, you know, your advisor uh, relationship is basically what you make out of it, right? Like you've got to really drive those and, um, you know, really make them work for you. Yeah, there there have been so many times where I look through a pitch deck where you're like, oh, this his, his advisor is the CEO of Goldman Sachs, like, and this <laughs> and it's a consumer, you know, products company. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's impressive but, they have that connection. Yeah. It just doesn't affect right. the investment decision at all. Correct. For us. And I think that probably applies to a lot of investors. So it's not worth it unless that person's actually helping you. Very cool. Thank you, Fung. All right. Thank you. What's up, Brett? Um, yeah, it's uh, quite a bit going on. By the way, the, the rest of the segment is just going to be a lot of sighing. So I just want to prepare you. In this- yeah, this is going to be a depressing they're talking about post-apocalyptic bank run world. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to be bad vibes. I think we have to do it, but. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, I'll leave sort of the macro implications to, to Chris, but uh, one of the interesting things I want to point out is uh, the response to crypto prices, specifically, you know, if we hone in on Bitcoin, it's up about 25% since early Monday. Um, and it's interesting to think through whether that's because uh, it's a risk on asset and when uh, they essentially bailed out the banks that that, you know, uh, quelled fears of a recession or, you know, it could have uh, indicated uh, the Fed or an expectation the Fed will begin to cut rates. So it went up. Uh, But then the other theory is that it's a hedge against the banking system. So uh, it, it's an interesting thought process to to try and figure out and dismantle whether, in fact, it is uh, a hedge against all these political risk factors that Bitcoin people in particular talk about. So, it, But if it was risk on, wouldn't that mean that we would be seeing an uptick in other risky assets? People are investing again to make money and take advantage of the opportunities. Wouldn't we see like stock market popping and a whole bunch of other positive yeah. so if, if it's just crypto it kind of implies it there's some perception of it's a hedge against the banking system 
Yeah, I, I would I would say so. The the S and P is up about two percent over that same period. Um, so I would attribute some of crypto's rise to probably uh, risk on expectations. Uh, but I would also uh, attribute it to very much so uh, being a banking hedge. So I think yeah. that's I think that's a pretty big deal uh, because there's been a lot of disappointment in terms of uh, people's expectations for Bitcoin in particular as a hedge for say inflation. Uh, when Bitcoin in in actuality it's not necessarily a, a real time inflation hedge. Uh, Long term stores of value are supposed to be very long-term inflation hedges, and that could be over 20, 30 years, for example, and you could look to gold for that. So, um, so yeah, it, it's uh, actually quite satisfying for uh, a lot of people seeing crypto, uh, you know, having a real hedging aspect to it. Um, and then also seeing how the different stable coins reacted to all of this since USDC depe- uh, depegged. Uh, after the SBB situation, because they had some money there, um, so it, it's just interesting seeing these flight to safety qualities within crypto, and then you know coming from outside into crypto. Okay, so what are the big headlines now? We've had three banks fail. We've got others that are in the in the mix. We've got the government intervening. This isn't going to be contained to banking sector, right? What what is what does all of this mean for broader blockchain? What's going on? Uh, yeah, I so I've spoken to a lot of people, and you know there there are a few that had some capital SVB, but you know ultimately they're going to be going to be fine. Um, I haven't heard too much ripple effects uh, within the space after this. I, I do know there's going to be a lot more uh, attention paid to where people bank. And they're also going to do, for example, cash sweeps so that they can distribute uh, their capital across a number of different banks, for example. Um, So really just better risk management overall for the companies that aren't holding money on chain. Um, So that that would probably be the the biggest thing. Thing that sticks out to me in terms of you know uh, companies directly reacting to this. Okay, so and that's not a blockchain thing. That's a that's all a businesses, thing. all companies are now thinking of banking as a risk right. for the first time in a decade or two. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's again, it's you know, this is why sort of a lot of crypto was started to begin with. Uh, it was the desire for a new, transparent, trustless financial system, uh, you know, because of frustrations with uh, things that are currently happening now. Um, let's let's talk about the sweep accounts for a second. We're investors in a company called Ro. Yeah. R H O dot co. Yeah. It's a neo bank, and they've got a product where a company can hold seventy up to seventy five million dollars in one account. Yeah but it's all FDIC insured. And the way they do that is behind the scenes. That money is instantly spread across 400 or something accounts across a whole bunch of different banks. Yeah. Um, and so this concept of, you know, essentially con- companies can de-risk yeah. uh, through these accounts that systematically distribute the assets. When you hear that, <laughs> right, what's, What's the policy strategy 
of a $250,000 cap. I get it. Are they just trying to say, hey, this is meant to protect consumers and not companies? Because a lot of companies of any smaller medium, 250K is kind of below the cash level they need to have just to make payroll yeah. on a monthly basis. Yeah. Um, is the idea that FDIC insurance is just to coverage, con- cover consumers and not companies? Or is it just outdated? What, what, what should be going on here with the FDIC policy to make the banking system better? You know, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of political opinions on this. There's a lot of political opinions on this. Um, I, I think the, sh- the most straightforward path would be to just guarantee all, all deposits and then you move on from there and you increase capital requirements and you regulate it, you know, in different ways. So that's sort of one of the, the big themes that I'm hearing is, uh, you know, expectations are already there. So, you know, why not uh, mitigate it <clears throat> via other regulations and uh, but yeah, I think the 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 point of that is so businesses have the capacity to do additional due diligence on banks and and who they do business uh, with, whereas consumers aren't expected to do so. Um, I think it's probably outdated, um, as with probably most uh, most regulation. But um, but yeah, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, but regardless, it, it's it should be revamped. Yeah, it's it's confusing because it's not simple, right? Yeah. If you just turn the dial and guarantee all deposits, which seems pretty good on the surface, yeah, right. Uh, it changes how banks have to be regulated, yeah. And there'll be a lot of people in the crowd raising their hands saying, "Hey, the government's not good at doing its job." Yeah, right. Or it might be good now, but leadership can change, policies can get stale. Yeah. It's not very agile. Yeah. And the private sector is extremely agile. Yeah. And so there's a mismatch. So it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough situation. I, I do feel like, you know, there's a, a sadness to what's happened to all of the equity holders and teams at SVB, Silvergate, Signature, and otherwise, who are getting hit right now. There was mismanagement for sure. There's mismanagement everywhere. Yeah. But it, the headline I'm getting from this is at, at the core of the core, this was a psychological movement of the crowd. Yeah. Right. Yeah. These were business issues that were resolvable at the banks yeah. um, with standard, you know, policies and business relationships between banks and governments. Yeah. Uh, these banks didn't need to die. No. Yeah. Uh, and so the psychology of the bank run you know, finding a way to remove that as kind of an arbitrary, you know, guillotine yeah. in our economy might be worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting looking at, at Signature Bank. Uh, Barney Frank, who uh, created Dodd-Frank, the, the big banking regulation uh, after 2008, he was on the board at, uh, at Signature. And... It's still relatively unclear why Signature was shut down. So we're looking to to hear more about that. Um, you know, there's there's some discussion about uh, some of the previous administration's rollback of Dodd Frank, and that this. And again, I'm not you know uh, saying yes or no. It's just you know what the chatter, rumor mill. Yeah, it's what the chatter is uh, that they weren't yeah. uh, subject to stress tests. 
And then that turns into further debate about whether the stress tests themselves would have indicated that there was a problem here. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of that type of back and forth going on here. And I would actually love to see somebody, if there's anybody out there listening that can do this, uh, replicate the, the stress test for, or at least as close as possible, uh, for that regulation were, were they to be, uh, under those, those guidelines, if it would have in fact indicated a problem, uh, because that to me is sort of the crux of, of a lot of these debates that I'm seeing. Wild times. Yeah. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. Chris, what's up, buddy? Glad to catch you this week. I know you're about to head off to Singapore uh, to meet with a bunch of family offices and then to China. Yeah. So this may be the last one for a little bit, I think, unless you're going to call in. Yeah, unfortunately. First time in five years visiting family. It's it's about time. That'll be great. That'll be great. All right. Well, let's get to it. Uh, I'd say what's going on, but. I think we all know what's going on. Yeah, um, there's just too many things going on right now. I, I, you know, it's not just the U.S. Right, uh, France. Uh, we people probably saw. I'm not sure if it's even covered uh, extensively, but there's a major protest going on in France uh, on the extension of uh, retirement age, which has implications and things that the U.S. can learn from uh, as our debt structure sort of balloons uh, going forward. And of course, we've got inflation this week uh, that was largely <laughs> buried by the news from the postmortem from SVB. But, you know, we, we did have PPI and CPI this, this past week. And, um, and, and, and you know, the, the, the headline is that, that we're trending in the right direction. But I don't think it matters as much anymore at this point because financial stability, as, as we talked about, takes center stage. And inflation is is way in the backseat. Um, so maybe let's let's keep talking about the postmortem on what's happening, and because there's just so many things that are, are still just moving all over the place, and I, I think people should focus on. Um, yeah, I, I, and you said this to me before. I'd, I'd love for you to cover it. I think yeah. people aren't aware of how volatile the market has been. Yeah, they've been focusing on SVB, but the ripple. It, th- this was an asteroid. That hit the ocean and there's tsunamis everywhere yes we're we're by no means at the end of this we're at the very beginning of this right there th- this could take weeks if not months to digest what has happened in the past week so let's start let's let's start from there we're you know i think uh svb just filed chapter 11. uh i think as of last night this morning and this is the the for folks that that don't um uh, don't, don't know this. This is effectively the, the reorganization bankruptcy. So this gives SVB time to effectively stop payments on the debt and start uh, effectively selling its assets and to, to different potential bidders. Um, it, it freezes the whole process and, and introduces more time to, the, to, to SVB management to um, salvage the situation. Let's say, but it's officially Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And FR, I think this is no surprise to anybody. I think this people saw this coming. What's more top of mind and um, really causing some volatility in the market is FRB. On, on uh, Thursday, March 16th, 11 biggest banks in the U.S. 
came together and put a $30 billion um, uninsured deposits into FRB. And this is meant as a signaling to all depositors and really all market participants that the banking system in the US is still safe and well capitalized. And they're trying to basically stop the bank run that's effectively still going on. Uh, unfortunately, this move so far, as far as we can glean from how the market is reacting, has not stopped the run yet. Uh, I think I just heard uh, from my other, other, other family offices and, and people we talked to in the market that FRB just halted trading uh, as of this morning. Stocks is down at $25, which is 27% down intraday. Um, and this is this 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 I think this part deserves a conversation because thirty billion dollars of uninsured deposits on top of what the Fed was offering in terms of the lending program last week has still not stopped the bank run. And the thing we should talk about is why 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 not? And if you put yourself in the shoes of sort of depositors and equity holders. The, the way to think about this is, is, is it's just game theory, right? Depositors, there's no upside to put your money with, with, with these banks that could potentially go under. So why would you not move it somewhere else safer? And knowing that the equity holders of these banks also see the same reason, like why there's no upside. Why, why would you want to risk any potential uh, you know, bankruptcy in this situation? Just move your equity, move your money somewhere else, take a loss. Um, and, and, and they're just better risk return somewhere else. So effectively the bank run has not stopped and the drain in the equity value of these banks has not stopped. So, and in fact, it introduces more contagion risk now, given that these 11 banks move their deposits into FRB. So it's, it's, it's a situation where it's, it's very, very tough to change direction of once, once the run has, is start, has started. Um, and we're seeing it trickling into other sectors too, like Credit Suisse, uh, who's been, frankly, in the past six months, a year, gradually winding down their operations in the U.S. and, and stocks suffering you know, along the way, is now also feeling the pain from the situation from FRB and SVB. It, it traded down to $2, less than $2 uh, you know, during the week and 75% down from a year ago. How do you stop that? It's, it's, um, the contagion is still there. I think it's, it's really the, the headline here. And, and so that's, that's just sort of within the banking sector. I mean, there's a lot more that we can talk about in terms of the volatility and race and equity market and everything else. Yeah, let's, let, let's, let's stay here for a second, though. So yeah, the chaos is in, has ensued. It's continued. Yeah. Uh, other banks came in, tried to calm everyone down. Sounds like it didn't really work. Not yet. What moves are left? What can happen next? Can you give us some possible scenarios? What, where does all this go? I mean, is it just, you know, a couple more banks go under, which is obviously awful. And then this yeah. eventually dies down because cash does have to go somewhere. People aren't putting yeah. it under the mattress. Mm. Or is there some, are there other effects of this where it kind of, it, it doesn't get contained to the banking yeah. sector. We are certainly, I mean, this is a, a clear to stay now. We're in the, in the middle of a, a deposit migration. Depositors are moving from regional banks to, big, to the big bulge brackets. 
to stop this migration move, just given what we just talked about in terms of game theory, you need a one player. It cannot. It, it, the, the consortium banks really won't do it because they're part of the game. They're part of. They're, they're the players. They're not. They're not controlling the game. We need the government to come in and take a potentially more drastic move. I don't know what that move could be because last week it was the move from guaranteed deposits and the loan program, you know, which is potentially worth $2 trillion is already unprecedented. This is out of my realm and, and I'm not really sure what they can do, but we do need a, a, a let's say, a, you know, a, a controller, let's say, not, not a player inside the game to come out and, and really set the tone. You know, looking back in history, sort of think, thinking about let's the 1930s, you know, the Great Depression, how the Roosevelt uh, originally came out and, and, and sort of calmed the market uh, uh, with New Deal. And that's, that's really the, the magnitude of the move that we, what's, that's required here to, to, to really calm markets and, and make sure the run actually stops on all levels. But we're not, you know, the U.S. government is way over levered now. Yeah. Right. So the the idea they can just reach into a bottomless pocket to buy their way out of a crisis, which is in part caused probably by the bottomless pocket already being dipped into mm -hmm. so deeply. Yeah. You know, we're, we're we're losing our backstop. We're losing our ability to quell things like this with our bankroll. Yeah, it hurts the long long term credibility of the Fed. Um, central bank for short a dollar. Um, so, any major moves you see right now through all of this? Where, yeah, it, it, know, it, what, we're seeing it in two sectors, which we predicted last week too, right? So, number one, uh, interest rates. Two-year Treasuries now down to three point nine three. That's a hundred and fifteen basis point move in a matter of four days, five days. 10-year treasuries down 70 basis points, same time period. And this move is, so for, for folks who don't know, th this, how does this translate into everything, right? So the first thing that people will think about is, oh, uh, mortgage, and mortgage rates, and this will really affect consumers. Mortgage rates, just like a, a lot of other borrowing rates, has actually two components, right? Interest rates and credit spreads. So interest rates have moved down dramatically. 120, 100 basis point at the time in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the front end. But credit spreads, which is the, sort of the credit quality of the lenders, have ballooned or have, have really uh, uh, widened out in the past week, which is offsetting the, the moving rates. So for people who out there who are looking at their mortgage rates and refinance and, 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 and secondary implications in their, in their portfolios, the, you need to take into account both, right? So it's, it's, everything's very volatile. Uh, it won't translate directly into mortgage as of yet. You know, we'll see how, how that shakes out. Um, I would say stay out of, stay patient, stay out for a bit. If you're sort of, uh, uh, if you have interest rates or, or credit instruments in your portfolio. Um, so, so that's interest rates, right? And we also talked about the implication on potential big tech stocks uh the, the impact has already shown through so this week alone the big techs are the, probably the biggest benefit the benefactors in in, in s p uh amd nvidia up 19 percent, 14 percent on the week microsoft up 12 percent meta up 11 percent 
Amazon, Apple up up anywhere between five to eight percent, right? So this is this is where really um, the big tech is benefiting from the move, the potential move from from the Fed cutting rates and uh, uh, sort of re-entering into the low interest rate environment that we've seen in the last ten years. Right. So it's not as though interest rates have changed. It's markets less stable. Fed is not expected to raise rates as rapidly and probably to reduce them as a result. Correct. And that's yeah, the expectation. Big tech. It, exactly. The expectation of interest rate in the next quote, two years has, has dramatically re, been reset right now. We're, 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 we just went overnight from a hiking cycle to a cutting cycle. The futures market is pricing in zero. We're at the peak of our interest rate path at the moment. No more hikes and three costs by the end of the year. That's the expectation, correct? Well, we are in choppy waters, uh, and I think the only the future is going to tell exactly how this shakes out. So we're going to have to keep watching. Yeah, hundred percent. Thank you, Chris. And a reminder for everybody: Chris is an SEC registered RIA, and everything he said should not be considered investment advice. Thanks, Mark. So yeah, heavy times uh, in the broader markets. Um, you know, this is my third uh, rodeo of seeing really turbulent markets. I just graduated in college in 01, was on the front lines of 08 as a VC, and we're now seeing it all again. Uh, I would just say to folks, you know, you're seeing all of this. Uh, there's going to be some desperate moments for a lot of folks uh, in your lives or personally. Uh, keep your chin up. Uh, these, these eras tend to come and go. They suck. Uh, and if you get hit squarely with one of these, uh, macro trends, just hold on, you know, they don't last forever. They're usually a finite period of time. And then euphoric delirium will be back in our lives typically within a couple of years. Uh, so hold on, keep moving, um, and leverage those support networks. If you're not in one and you're an entrepreneur, you should be checking out Benwise. That's the perfect place to get that. Um, but wherever you find that, it's important. And now's the time to hold on to it. <laughs>